Um, we've been tracking through, um, talking about hope through um, First Peter, and last week, a young woman called Samantha did a sermon, and I think it was her first sermon, and it's tough to... It's tough doing a first sermon. It's just tough doing a sermon because you get up here and you, you know, you don't really know if you've got anything to offer or what you're going to say or if you're going to say something wrong. And I often say something wrong. And um, but it's a tough gig, eh? It's a tough gig doing a sermon. So I thought she did a really, really good job. Um, if any of you remember, and I was talking to Laurie about it last week, eh, Laurie? And the good thing about someone getting up and telling their story is there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, it's their story. It's not an opinion, you can't argue with it, they're telling their story. And um, Samantha spoke about, uh, her sermon changed what I was going to do, so what I'm doing today is a direct result of what Samantha said. She talked a little bit about um, how when she was young, her father died, and life was pretty tough, life at home wasn't very good. And she's talked about how um, it was really tough, and eventually she walked into a church, and if I remember correctly, and I may not be, but if I remember correctly, she talked about she walked into the office and she asked for help. And she got it. So I think it's really cool. It's a good thing about a church. And that really impacted I mean, She talked about a sense of community with the church. So what I want to try to do today, directly from what she said about that, is we're talking about hope, and we often talk about Christ as the hope, and that's correct. But I want to have a look at it and see if our church can be hope. If our church can be hope. Because... What she said was, um, it reminded me a lot of time about 12 or 13 years ago, I walked in those doors and I was broke and I was broken and my life was just, it was chaos. And some of you will remember what it was like for me back then. I was in the middle of a marriage breakup, relationships had all broken down, I had no prospects for anything. Physically I was stuffed, mentally I was stuffed, I was just hanging on by a thread. And I walked in those doors and I sat over there. And there was this old guy with a white, older guy, <laughs> older guy with a white beard up here doing the sermon. And I don't remember what he said, but he come down and after the sermon, he come and sat down there beside me and had a chat. And he said, um, just talked a bit about some inane stuff it would have been. And he said, uh, do you want me to come around and see you? And I said, yeah, that'd be good, because I was in a bad place. And he came around to see me, and over the years... Um, we spent a lot of time together, he became a very good friend. Um, his name was Derek Pyle, he was the pastor of this church. And um, he was really good to me, he came to visit me. He never preached at me, he still never told me what to think, there's a few times he probably should have, but he hasn't yet. Um, and he had a big impact on my life. And actually, we are, um, I think we are at the pub the other night having a beer, and, and we are talking about people that have been influences in our lives. And you know, we're all saying what we say, and, and obviously I said where my dad was, you know, your dad's a big influence on your life, and mine was, but uh, I said, this guy Derek Pyle, the pastor of the church I go to, uh, who was the pastor, he would have had a bigger impact on my life than probably anyone else in my adult life. And that's a pretty cool thing to say. And um, probably be no one I respect more. So anyway, that's another, I come into this church, I, was, I needed help, and I got it, and I think that's pretty cool. And here I am, 12, 13 years later, still coming back, and you still let me get up and talk, which still amazes me. But anyway, so look, we're tracking through First Peter. 
Okay, so we're going to rip into it and have a look at it. Now, I'm supposed to do... Um, Craig gave me 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, but he's not here, so I'm going to do three. <laughs> um, and he won't mind, you know, but not because I'm trying to get away with it. But the real reason is that you unpack these verses, and look, we could spend months just on these first three. And the first three, I think, encapsulate the whole thing anyway, and it means that hopefully we can get to a point. Okay, so that, that's the real reason. I'm not trying to get out of it and just because Craig's not here. Um, so we're going to start into it. So it's um, Peter the Apostle, he's writing to, I guess you could say he's writing to us, you know. He's writing to the elect, but he's writing to people. He's giving us information that, that here we are 2,000 odd years later, we can take it or leave it. It's up to us. And so we'll see what he's going to, I guess the advice that he's giving us, you know, individually and as a church. So First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Sure you've all heard that before. Pretty well known verses in Christianity, eh? We've all heard them a million times. And sometimes with verses you hear them that many times they lose all relevance. They're just words that flow out. So we'll have another look at it and I'm going to try and see if we can do something to it and see what does that actually mean. You know, We've read some verses What's the point of it? So we'll go through again. I'm just going to... The first verse. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. I think... Doesn't need a lot of explanation, that one, eh? I think any of us, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, culture around the world, we all know that those things are not good things, you know? I think we're all probably pretty relaxed that malice, maliciousness is never good. None of us like it. You know? So, um, so the first verse is pretty easy. Yep, got that stuff, let's get rid of it. Be good for us individually, collectively as a church, as a country, and as a world. Be good if we got rid of those things. So then we move on to the second verse. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Yeah, I don't really know what to make of that. And to me, and this is a personal opinion, it's a bit sort of religious language, you know? And I've got, you know, it's written there, it's all good, but it's... Um, I was trying to think what to make of that. What is this pure spiritual milk? Which I don't like the word of that anyway, but it's, I guess Peter's saying, what's something that's going to nourish us, help us grow up, give us something, you know? It's going to be good for us, effectively. And so I thought, well, what do I find? What's that thing that we're looking for? And I thought, well, how I'll approach it. I'll look at the things that he's just asked us to get rid of, and I'll look for the opposite of those things and see if they're the things that might be good for us. And it kind of worked out pretty good for me doing the sermon. So he said to get rid of malice, maliciousness, okay, which means basically ill will towards someone. You wanted to harm someone. So if we look at what the opposite of that is, it would be we could be friendly or helpful, helpful or cooperative. So I think helpful is pretty good. You know, instead of being malicious, let's be helpful. Okay, deceitful is the other thing. You know, get rid of all deceit. It's pretty easy that one, eh? Replace it with honesty. That's the opposite. So this um, thing that we're supposed to look for, this thing we're supposed to fill ourselves up with, this pure spiritual milk, so far we've got, you know, be helpful and be honest. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with any of that. We all on board? Okay, the next one, what we got? We've got hypocrisy. No one likes hypocrite, eh? Big problem, you've got one up here preaching. But um, so being a hypocrite is basically saying that you've got these qualities that you don't actually have, you know? 
None of us like Africa. We can sniff a, sniff a hypocrite out, can't we? We say it a lot with our politicians. You know, we always accuse them of hypocrisy. We should probably look in the mirror a lot more often, uh, especially me. But anyway, so if we, if we want to look at the opposite of hypocrisy, you know, I think you could say um, probably genuineness or sincerity would be the opposite of hypocrisy. If we're sincere, if we're genuine, another, basically honest again. If we're that there, that's, that's the opposite of hypocrisy. Uh, what's the next one is envy. Um, we all know what envy is, the green-eyed monster. We all probably suffer from it, but I know I do. Um, the opposite of that surprised me a little bit, Genera, generosity. Be generous. It's the opposite of envy is be generous, you know? Or be, be comfortable, confident, but be generous. That's the way to take that envy up. And the last thing, slander. We all know what slander is. It's like in the schoolyard, you're trying to drag someone down. You're trying to wreck someone's reputation, give them a hard time, you know, bring them down, pull them down. The opposite of slander is praise. Praise someone. Or try to pull them up, try to lift them up, you know? So that's what I thought. Well, those things there are the opposite of the things that he's told us to get rid of, the other things that we could bring in. So I'll paraphrase that verse now. So this is what I come up with. Is the thing that I think hopefully is something. So therefore, I'm going to read that as, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, and take on helpfulness, honesty, genuineness, generosity, and building people up. You know? I think that's pretty good. But I think we can go a bit further than that, eh? Because that's, um, you know, I think that's good. I think it's a good start. But effectively, if we look at those things, if we look at the first five, and the first verse, and, the, and then the, the ones that we've shown in the second verse that we should replace it with, the first five are all ultimately based on pride. All of those things ultimately, at the essence, come from pride. The other ones, I believe, the essence of them is humility. So we could actually say those verses, we could get them down a lot, lot shorter and just say, you know what? Get rid of pride and take on humility. I think that's what those verses are trying to tell us. You know, and that's, that's obviously individually, but also collectively as a church. If I can get this mouse thing to work properly. Okay, so now we've figured out what that says. It's all, all good perkies, you know, all well and good, but, you know, so what? What's the big deal? What do you do with it, you know? What's the point of all that there? So there's the second part now that we come to. So this is the end of verse 2 and the start of verse 3. So that by it, we've done those things, we've got rid of something, we've brought something else in that's going to be good, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay. Now, tasted that the Lord is good is kind of not the language he's kind of used nowadays, is it? You know? But um, I looked at a lot of other translations and they, they say things like, instead of tasted that the Lord is good, they'll say that, you know, about finding out that the Lord is kind and gracious and good, you know? And that's about it, you know? And we can see from the Gospels accounts that Christ was kind and good and gracious. So that's what we're trying to get to. And if Christ was good and kind and gracious, then we, if we claim to be his followers, should be good and kind and gracious. And so when Christians get together, people should be able to see that we are good and kind and gracious. You know? And sometimes we're not. Sometimes we are. Um, my experience with this church has been that it's been good and kind and gracious. I know people rip into Christianity a lot and they rip into church a lot and I do it a fair bit myself. But 
a lot of the stuff that people say about Christians and churches has not been my experience coming into this church. You know, I think that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Okay, so what we're going to do now, we're going to play a video. Nige, if you can get that up and ready to go. And um, we're just going to have a quick look. I've played this video before. This is the third time I've played it, but that's over about 12 years. So hopefully there's a new enough crew that um, you're not going to be bored. It's not a boring video anyway. I think it's a really good video. It's just giving us an idea now of what a church might look like that's got some of these things and maybe what a church should be. You know? So we'll have a look at that, and then I'll come up and we'll get finished. Eh? Right, cheers, mate. If you go to Honolulu from the East Coast, those of you who have been there know that you wake up like at 3 o'clock in the morning. And you can't get back to sleep. And I'm, I'm hungry. And I, I went looking for something to eat. And even at that wee hour of the morning, in a bustling city like Honolulu, you can't find a place that's open. But up a side street, I did find a place. I went in, sat down on the stool. It was a greasy spoon. No booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter and, and this fat guy with a dirty, filthy, greasy apron came out, pulled his cigar out, put it down and said, what do you want? I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus that grease had piled up on it. And I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. I said, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. I hate that. So I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating this dirty donut. Into the room come about eight or nine prostitutes, and they sat down on either side of me. And I tried to disappear. And the one on my immediate right said, tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm going to be 39. Her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? You want a cake? What, do you, what should we do? Have a party for you? You're going to be 39. First woman said, look, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just, why do you have to put me down? And then she said, with a crack in her voice, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited till, you know, till they all left. And I was the only one left. I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one next to me? He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we decorate the place? And when she comes in tomorrow, we have a birthday party for her because I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. He said, mister, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Jane, he called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. I thought, jeez, this is great. She comes out, she grabs my hand, she says, Mister, you wouldn't understand this because of what she does, you know? But she's one of the kind people in this town. She's one of the caring people in this town. I said, uh, look, can I, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh jeez, you know. Oh. <laughs> so I got there the next morning. I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I had bought crepe paper at the Kmart, strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. Put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who got, does the cooking, got the 
word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walked through the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes! And all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And we started singing, Happy birthday, Happy birthday, Happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake, and finally he said, All right, Agnes, knock it off. <laughs> blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried, and she couldn't, so he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, Now cut the cake. Come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment, and then she said to me, Is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, What I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home. I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence, the whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. <laughs> a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her, I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Camp Paulo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I thought that was a clever answer. <laughs> I'll never forget his response. He looked back and he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a church that was filled with people that move out into the world and bring celebration and joy into the lives of those who have nothing to celebrate and have no joy, to bring celebration to those who are brokenhearted and beaten down, to lift them up and give them some joy in their life. That's what you are called to do. You are called to be agents of God, to spread His love and His joy into a loveless and joyless world. That's what you're called to do. And if you surrender to Christ and let Him cleanse you and let the Spirit fill within you, His Spirit 
will constrain you, says Scripture, constrain you, drive you to do loving and joyful things in a world devoid of joy and love. Do you hear me? It's a pretty powerful video, isn't it? You know. Um, you know, it's interesting that Christ never actually asked us to worship him. He asked us to follow his example. He called on us to love our neighbours. He went as far to say that loving God and loving your neighbour is virtually indistinguishable from each other. You know, they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second's like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Pretty much the same. He then gave us the story of the Good Samaritan to show us that a neighbour was everyone, even people we considered outcasts, even the people we didn't even like or even know. Frederick Beekner, he's probably my favourite author, he passed away about a year ago. He's had a big impact on my life. He once wrote, to lend a hand to someone when they are falling, maybe that's the only thing that really matters in the end. To me, those words are sacred. I read them in Philip Yancey's book. They, for some reason, they jumped off the page and they burned themselves into me, and I don't follow them enough. You know, last week we had a sermon, and Samantha said how she walked into a church when she was falling, and someone reached out their hand to help her. And I walked into this church when I was falling. In the most direct and simple call to action that's ever been uttered. Maybe he meant it. Cheers. <laughs>